We are really excited about this edition of The Pace Line because we have a special guest. It's kind of like mountain biking. Definitely not 100% like road riding, but a little bit of the road stuff. And so we are finding both groups coming together, which I think is great because if you're riding bikes, you're riding bikes. Rebecca Rush joins us for a candid talk about racing and doing the right thing. The Queen of Pain is now the winner of the Dirty Kanza 100. She tells us how she crossed the line in second, but was later on the top step. We also get into the future of adventure racing, how to enforce fair play, yet keep it fun. And we touch on the tragedy in Kalamazoo, an investigative team normally assigned to airplane crashes has taken up the case. Line, the podcast on two wheels. Thanks for joining our little group ride. You know, this podcast really is kind of like a group ride, guys. We uh, meet at the same place, same time, pretty much same group. We ride, we talk, we decide nothing. So, yeah, it's got a group ride <laughs> element to it, in my mind. <laughs> Pace Line, a production of FatCyclist.com. And under the terms of that agreement, we are contractually obligated to have with us Fatty. And I'm happy to be here with you guys. So good to have you along. Uh, the Pace Line posted on the pages of redkiteprayer.com every Thursday. Patrick Brady is the one who hits the publish button for us. Howdy. The Pace Line riding this time in memory of the five cyclists in Kalamazoo, Michigan, who lost their lives. A total of nine were run down while on their evening group ride. Guys, the National Transportation Safety Board is investigating this case. A spokesman says the NTSB is investigating because the agency has taken an interest in the case and not at the request of local authorities. The spokesman said this is such a singular event that they want to look at the issues behind it. It is unusual for the NTSB to investigate crashes involving bicycles. According to the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, Michigan is in the top 10 in the country for per capita cyclist death, 24 uh, per year on average. The suspect has been charged. He's Charles Pickett Jr., 50 years old, faces five counts of second-degree murder and four counts of reckless driving, causing serious impairment. Serious case, Patrick. Um, feels like, though, we have the type of response we'd expect or at least hope for in a situation like this. This has certainly gotten people's attention. Uh, I might mention that uh, when I posted on Facebook on the RKP page, uh, the link for my article on this, uh, it was shared 82 times and seen by more than 21,000 people, which is a record for us. Um, I'm hopeful that the NTSB investigation and the fact that the driver has been charged with five counts of murder might do something to alert authorities to our vulnerability and our right to the road. Um, that said, I will be holding my breath just a little bit because this could turn into another case of blaming the victim. And we've seen a lot of that, and I don't think it's going to stop just yet. I just hope that the NTSB doesn't become part of that uh, ongoing thread. Mm -hmm. Well, with the NTSB involved, the one bright light may be that the message will get back to Washington, that, that somehow folks... Uh, in, in places of power, we'll hear what has happened and the details about what has happened and some of the issues that we put up with uh, on a daily basis when we take to the road. Uh, there has been one ride in honor of the victims, a good-sized group, one week after the tragedy, finished the ride started by the nine people who were run down, and Mayor Bobby Hopewell, mayor of Kalamazoo, spoke to the group. We can't allow the evil and stupidity and ignorance of those that decide to harm folks through their actions stop us from living our lives. Uh, still to come, too, is the 25th annual Cal Tour. It's organized by the Kalamazoo Bike Club, scheduled for a Sunday, June 26th. It'll start at a downtown athletic club. It is dedicated this year to the nine cyclists run down, and the money raised will um, go to their families. Um, the Folks killed in the crash, and we want to honor these people because um, really our hearts go out to their families. Um, uh, Deborah Bradley 
was one of those killed. Melissa Hughes, Fred Nelson, Lorenz Pollock, Suzanne Sippel were the five victims. The four others uh, seem to be doing pretty good. Actually, one was released from the hospital, so good news on that front of the four who were injured. Fatty, you are about to uh, head out on a relay ride yeah. uh, that involves night riding. Um, I can't imagine that this will escape you, that what is happening in Kalamazoo and the risk that you potentially are taking out there. Yeah, there will be a few hundred of us out there this weekend uh, on open roads racing uh, through the day, through the night, and then through another day. And, um, yeah, of course, it it scares me, to be quite frank. Um, and I re- really all I guess I would say is, you know, all of us cyclists are also motorists, drivers, be safe, take care of each other, and watch out for people on two wheels. A lot of that route was chosen by the members of the chain gang because it's a fairly, as safe as things can be, sensible and safe route. Pace line, Fatty, uh, Patrick Brady, and Michael Houghton here. And guys, uh, I think for the first time ever on the Pace line, we're going to welcome a, a special a special guest, a very special guest, uh, someone knows, who knows a lot about the topic we're going to be covering next, which of course is gravel and adventure riding and racing. And that is seven-time world champ, four-time Leadville 100 champ, current Dirty Kansas 100 champ, author, firefighter, Am I missing anything? <laughs> oh, name. It would be name. Rebecca Rush joins the Pace Line. Rebecca, thanks for uh, joining our little show here. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Awesome. Awesome to have you. Um, glad you could join our conversation because, you know, as folks probably know, the Queen of Pain loves to throw herself at anything that even remotely looks tough in cycling and riding. And that would include, as we said, Leadville Trail 100. I think you did a ride up the Kilimanjaro or something recently. I did uh, summit Kilimanjaro with my bicycle and had a great ride down um, recently as well. Yeah. What percent? What percent was ridden, and what percent was walking? Probably eighty percent rideable. Yeah. Cool. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty awesome. <laughs> that is pretty killer. Uh, I was checking out your website this morning. I love the. The, the homepage picture, you're like on a, on a rope with a bike hanging from you and you're somehow dangling and traversing across a crevasse of support. What the hell? I mean, that, that's dangerous stuff. The please, bike please can take safe. you a lot of places. That's a cool thing. So, yeah, that was my adventure racing days, that photo. <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. Anyhow, we've brought Rebecca um, on board today because she is a Dirty Kansas finisher, winner, um, and very experienced athlete and has seen quite a bit uh, in the area of adventure riding and racing and watched this, the sport grow. And, and last show, we talked about the DK200. We had the results for you. Uh, everything seemed pretty cool at the time. Um, we had a winner in Ted King for the men in the DK200. And the DK100 was went one and two, at least at the time, uh, by women. They beat all the men in the field, which we thought was pretty cool at the time. And we're going to get to all that in just a second. But first, Patrick, on the DK200, you've been following the story of the results, and we've had a writer who's been uh, DQ'd there. What did you What did you find out about what happened in the DK200? Well, it started with a basic social media post uh, by my friend Logan Van Bokel, a former VeloNews staffer. He now works on the PR side of things. And he posted something about how asinine it was that someone would be uh, DQ'd from the DK uh, for taking outside water. And I chimed in and was like, oh, that's just preposterous. That's really silly. You got to have water. And then shortly after that, he and I started getting pinged by any number of people saying, wait, um, there's actually a little bit more to this story um, than you've heard. And so people start forwarding me screenshots of Nick Fry, the writer in question. Uh, Nick finished sixth at at the 200. And... um, uh, people started forwarding me screenshots from his social media posts, links to uh, his blog post about it and all this stuff. And gradually what emerges is that he had uh, some level of, of 
follow vehicle out on the course. Uh, he says he didn't plan it that way. He says it wasn't his vehicle. Um, you know, the more I dug, the more contradictory his statements got. The long and short of it is he violated a basic rule in terms of having support from a vehicle that was not at one of the various aid stations where it was allowed. Um, mm-hmm. But then beyond that, he didn't go to the rider meeting. Uh, and that's a problem, you know, and he just was kind of woefully underprepared for, you know, let's remember this is this is a double century and as hard a uh, variety of double century as you can dream up. Uh, and he was just a two bottle guy. Um, hmm. And so, you know, I began digging into it and ended up writing a post saying, you know, look, <laughs> there are all sorts of things going on here. You know, this is not a guy who was treated in an unjust fashion. Um, the sad part is that he's locked horns with some guys, including former champ Yuri Hoswald, um, calling Yuri unprofessional and whatnot. And it's it's really gotten pretty ugly. Um, I wish Nick would have had the, the good sense to just... Uh, you know, call it a day, you know, accept the DQ. Um, but he's turned this into some sort of attempt at a cause celeb to say just how capricious and inconsistent, uh, the rules for dirty Kanza are. And I mean, I didn't race the event and I understand the rules. Uh, I didn't even go to the meeting and I understand the rules. Uh, so I'm not sure what the big deal is. Um, so that's, that's it in a nutshell. And to be clear, when he was approached by the organizers, he did offer to to withdraw. In other words, to have his name erased from the results page. That that was the case, right? But then he went on to make excuses, and that's that's where yeah. this firestorm began. Yeah, um, yeah. the The truth is kind of murky. Um, he has said a lot of contradictory things, and people have mm-hmm. come up with an, a lot of contradictory evidence. So. Uh, I'm sad about all that I'm, I feel confident of. Yeah. Uh, read the post on redkiteprayer.com. Um, and f- read, read anything you want. Cause it's pretty much, uh, all over the place right now regarding this particular event. Now we move to the DK 100 and unfortunately we had an issue there. Um, fatty, uh, you raised an eyebrow last week when you saw the results. Uh, what has happened with, the DK100 results. Well, I'll talk a little bit about the results, but the the experience, I think, I definitely want to turn to Reba and get what her her experience was. But the, the thing that surprised me is Jill Cederholm, who is a strong racer, but not a world-class top mountain bike athlete or gravel athlete, beat, the, beat Reba by 25 minutes and the fastest man by 30 minutes an extraordinary accomplishment and a kind and frankly out of line with what i would have expected from jill cederholm um she later i guess about a week later uh put up a post on facebook saying that essentially she had realized uh that there that she had done 94 miles instead of whatever the full distance was 101 miles and was therefore DQing herself. Um, my my gut says, well, how is it that it took a week for you to discover this? Um, how is it you did not realize when you were on uh, the finish line that somehow you had, without ever seeing that you had passed Rebecca, passed Rebecca and, and put a half hour on the rest of the field? when that's not really within the realm of what you do. So it's a little bit disconcerting. And I have a personal experience that kind of dovetails with that. I'm not going to go into it, but it feels like it. So she could have DQ'd herself a lot sooner than she did. Mm -hmm. Rebecca, when did you become aware of, of all this? Did did it raise any suspicions in your mind the day of the event? Um, well, so how it went down is, is Jill and two other guys and myself, we were all together until mile 50, um, the, the one and only aid station. And then after that, um, we hit a big mud section and then myself and Guy, um, Alvarez, uh, pulled away from Jill and the other man. Um, 
and Guy and I were sort of back and forth and, you know, within eyesight of each other for most of the race. And I kept looking back and we never saw the other two riders. And I was like, all right, cool. And it, and it was a hike a bike mud section. So I was like, all right, my adventure racing's coming in. I can hike my bike like nobody. So I was actually kind of put on some pressure there. And I was kind of like, okay, this is my, cause Jill was riding really strong. And I'm like, all right, this is how I can pull away, make sure she doesn't draft me. Um, so I kind of put in a big push during the hike a bike section. Um, and then a uh, guy and I never saw any tire tracks in front of us and never saw anything the rest of the day, uh, or never saw anything for about another 10 or 15 miles. And then, um, and my GPS, it, it had gone on and off. I'd had to restart it once. Um, and so I was sort of questioning a little bit like, oh, I mean, I've gotten lost in the dirty cancer before. And, yeah. you know, um, it, it's the way that remote racing goes. And so I was a little bit hyper aware of my, the GPS because I had turned it on and off and I was milking battery. And so I really started then going off my cue sheets. And I, I went up to Guy and I was like, hey, are, have we been on course the whole time? Are you good? Is your GPS good? And he's like, yeah, yeah, everything looks cool. I'm, I haven't set off course. And then all of a sudden we were riding together and we see two sets of tire tracks in front of us again, enjoying the course. And I was like, wait a minute, that's kind of weird. Um, cause it was muddy. It was really obvious. And so I was like, man, we did something wrong, you know? And, and I asked him again, like, have you set as, have you seen that we're off course? He's like, I don't think so. And, and my first reaction was like, damn, I screwed up again. Like I thought I went <laughs> long. I thought I'd missed a turn and that we are now back on course. And, um, Kansas is a grid system and they're all these one mile squares. So it, it is quite easy to either go a little too long or to make a turn and go a little too short. And I really thought, I thought we had messed up the whole time and I was bummed. I was like, man, we could have. And I was like, all right, maybe we can catch him. And we came across a photographer who was like, well, the good news is you're on course. Bad news is there's two people, you know, 45 minutes in front of you. Um, and I was pretty deflated and slowed down. and was just like, man, you know, um, <laughs> And I thought, and then I finished, you know, and you know, a couple other, I'd had a couple other interactions with people on course who, who had said, yeah, this woman came through and okay. Um, and so I, you know, I had fully accepted. I screwed up. I finished second, damn, you know, and I tried to close the gap and, and see if I could catch her. And, and sure enough, I didn't. Um, but like you said earlier, I was pretty excited that the top two, riders in the 100 even though it's not the marquee event for dirty kansas the top two riders were women i was like this is cool i gotta get a picture of this you know and i want to congratulate jill and so i've been thinking about that the whole time like okay i'll congratulate her i'll ask her you know i, I want to see where i went wrong um and I, I finished she wasn't at the finish line i looked around for her i really kind of wanted to wanted Seriously. to get a photo no she wasn't at the finish line and i was I was disappointed by that, and I was also disappointed because I'd heard a couple things on course from bystanders and this photographer that um, she perhaps was not being uh, not sort of the best sportsman on the best sportsmanship on course. And um, you know, and this isn't it's he said she said, but you know, the photographer definitely said that Jill was actually accusing me of of cutting the course. Um, even though I was in front of her, and all of a sudden I'm 45 minutes behind her, so. I'm re either really wow. bad You're at cheating. You're the worst course cutter yeah. ever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so well, remedial. If I went the wrong way and I was in front of you, and, and so I figured I'd gone long, but I, I guess she, and I don't know, she says that she didn't say this stuff about me, but um, so I kind of was going to come across the finish line. I want to congratulate her. And then I just kind of wanted to talk to her, ask if she had issues with me. I'd rather hear him, you know, to my face. Sure. Um, but I couldn't find her. I got I, a mutual friend. I got it, her phone number. I texted her. Hey, are you still around the finish line? Nope, nope. I'm gone. And um, and that was it. And I was just like, damn. So I didn't really realize uh, that it wasn't my mistake until I got home uh, Monday and I I uploaded my um, you know, uploaded my cork and stuff and looked at the course because I was like, I want to see where I went wrong. And it said 100.4 miles and. When Guy finished, he had 100.4 miles, and and that's when I realized on Monday morning that hey, um, I actually did the correct course, and I overlaid it with the DK course, and so I was like, oh, man, all right, well, so I just sent that to Jim. I sent that to the race director and said, this is the route I did, just letting you guys know, um, and I think at that point, you know, 
Jill hadn't produced a GPS file or anything like that. And, and eventually she did and came clean and, um, and said, yeah, I didn't do the full course. And, and, and that's the right thing to do. Um, and like I said, I've gotten lost in that course. And so I hope it was unintentional, but my thoughts to, um, you know, for the future is, is, is how do we actually verify, you know, that somebody does the correct course because there's only one timing mat on the course, you know, well, two, the finish and the, the aid station. And so that was my sort of um, input to the race directors, like, all right, how do we, how do we not have this happen? Because I felt really badly for, for the Dirty Kansas race directors dealing with two different disqualifications in each of their races, and, and nobody wants that. So, right. um, so I don't know, you know what the answer is, but, but definitely like verifying you know, your GPS file and things like that, you know, maybe that needs to become a standard for, for the top riders or... Or something, but yeah, I didn't know till Monday that it wasn't my mistake. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, this is what's so damaging about people who either make mistakes or do something on purpose is they rob the actual winner, the deserved winner, of their moment. And Rebecca, you've had a lot of moments, and you know, and you you have plenty of memories, but still, you belonged on the top step of that podium. Guy belonged on the second. Somebody had third. And belonged up there with you guys, right? Yeah, and, and that's the that's that's a big part of the damage here. It was a little anticlimactic, yeah, to finish and just be like, oh, I can't even shake the hand of the person who beat me, and you know, it's it's not the way that I, I like to race. I mean, I've had only one one other competitor um, that I used to race against, twenty four hour racing and mountain biking, who. If, if, if she didn't win, she didn't stick around for the awards or the podium, even if she was second or third. And I, I was always kind of miffed by that. It's like, if you win, I shake your hand. So if I win, you should be shaking mine too. Like it's just common sportsmanship and, you know, etiquette to, um, to hang out for 15, 20 minutes and, and say good job, especially when the top two are women. To me, I think that that would have been a great photo for social media and all that kind of stuff to be like, yeah, right. more women should race the Dirty Kanza. Check it out, you know. Um, so for, when it came time for podium photographs, she, was she, did she come back for that? No. And actually the 100 doesn't do like the awards oh. for the 200 are the next morning, like at the breakfast. Mm -hmm. Um, and they don't really have an award ceremony for the 100 and, oh, okay. you know, this is how, so it wasn't like there was a podium and a photo and, and that's why I wanted to get our own photo, you know, under, sure. you know, under the banner or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I didn't miss a podium moment, but I definitely missed, you know, having, um, you know, it's part of my job and my sponsors love race wins and I love race wins and, you know, um, and I'm, uh, I'm happy to shake somebody who's beat me fair, shake the hand of somebody who's beat me fair and square and, and honor their, honor their achievement, because I think that's really important. It's not just about me. It's about the sport in general. And for me, especially growing women and participation in the sport is super important. Mm-hmm. Well, the four of us love the gravel events, the places where they are held, the people who put them on, the participants, the equipment. Uh, it's been easy to fall in love with them. But it feels like, especially with these DQs at Dirty Kanza, like maybe this honeymoon is over. When people break the rules, when they cheat, it puts others on guard, including organizers. The grassroots feel has been a major attraction of these events. Um, Rebecca, uh, has the page been turned now? You know, the the page has been turned because they're, you know, and it's why I launched my event, Rebecca's Private Idaho, is because I went to Dirty Kansas, and I'll tell you, I did not want to go to that race five years ago, and I've been five years since. I <laughs> I went kicking and screaming because a sponsor made me go, and I've yeah. since really fallen in love, like you said, with, with the adventure, um, kind of with the different format, with the, the lack of rules and regulations, the lack of sanctioning, and just kind of more of an adventurous spirit kind of a ride, which which is what I'm all about. And, and I've really fallen in love with gravel and, and launched an event and done a ton more. And so I don't feel like the honeymoon is over per se. I feel like it's a really exciting growing segment. I mean, they're designing equipment now just for gravel rides. And people want to get off the road. They want to get out into the open land and where there's no cell phone coverage. And so the honeymoon is not over. The popularity is a good thing, but it is at this turning point, I believe, where we can either 
let it go crazy and you know each event do its own thing um or i actually think that some of the influencers in the sport this is a prime time to actually really guide what it is that we love about gravel and why people are attracted to it and how do we um protect what we love and and help it grow in a healthy and sustainable way because we want more participation race directors want people to come the riders want to come the Bike companies want to sell gravel bikes. So it's not going away, but we have an opportunity right now um, to to kind of shift the focus away from, oh, well, that guy cheated or this happened or this happened. It's like, all right, how do we make it better? And I'm not talking about regulating or sanctioning or UCI or anything like that, but right. maybe maybe we all get need to develop a code of ethics and kind of what is expected and you can take the example from like bike packing for example which is the the purest form of riding your bicycle totally unsupported you know from point a to point b um no support allowed and and there's some very clear sort of kind of rules of the road that everybody understands and and you're judged essentially on by the jury of your peers. It's like, if you come to one of these events, you know that this is how, this is how it's going to go down. You know, you've got to get your own food and water. And, and I think it's time for gravel to, to sort of grow up a little bit in that way and, and stand behind what we feel is important and what we want to protect. Yeah. I guess the risk we run is that, you know, when you introduce almost this policing of results, it kind of robs a little bit of the fun and, and, and some of the adventure. Patrick or Fatty, do you think that these organizers, based on what you have seen, have the ability to, to do that balancing act? Police, make things fair, yet keep it fun. There's a limited amount of policing that can go on. You know, the moment you've got a course that's longer than about 20 miles, um, you know, you're you're relying on people to do what's right. Uh, one thing I will say is, you know, a lot of these courses that I've seen, uh, unlike uh, triathlon, where, you know, there are these crazy out and back multiple loop things where it makes cutting the course really easy to do. Most events I see cutting the course is kind of hard to do. So that eliminates one problem for an awful lot of promoters, though maybe not all of them. Um, the question that comes up for me and part of this is because of a response uh, by a race promoter on the East Coast that I know. Um, he was asking, you know, if you're paying $140 to do Dirty Kanza, you know, why isn't why isn't the uh, the support being provided? Why isn't it be done, being done, you know, like a Century or a Fondo where, you know, you roll up to a stop and there's food being provided? It is a, a pretty hefty price tag. I don't know what goes into it. But I mean, this is the sort of thing that I want to turn to Rebecca. I mean, you know, I'm not sure that I agree with Nick that there were problems that need to be addressed by Jim Cummins. But to the degree that you think there are some growing pains um, in addressing the support issue of events like this, where do you think it should go? I I, I mean, it's very clear to me on the Dirty Kansas website, it's like, the aid stations are every 50 miles and, you know, and you got to get yourself in between those aid stations. And it's never said that, you know, you're going to have tea and crumpets at the aid station. It's, it's sort of like bring your own stuff, stuff your pockets, um, or arrange to have your crew there. So, I mean, for Nick's argument, I think it's very clear that you know what you're going to get when you sign up for the Dirty Kansas 200. Um, my event, for example, it's very clear that this is the food that will be at the aid station. We'll have, you know, roasted potatoes. We'll have goo. We'll have this. And most events I've done, it's very clear what's there and what's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't necessarily buy his argument about that if you pay this much money, you should be expected, you know, a nice warm sandwich or, or whatever he's expecting. I, th- The price tag is the price tag and here's what you're offered and it's up to the athlete. If that's not something you want to do, then you don't have to sign up. No so crumpets, I, no fatty. That's what yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't so I don't know really... what a crumpet is. What is a crumpet? It's like a, a, a little cake, you know, and yeah. Oh, um, I love cake. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think what's happened here is gravel, and I've always said this, gravel is is really kind of the, the marriage of, of 
road road and mountain biking. And it's the one place where actually both parties can kind of come together on a semi-equal playing field. And it takes it takes a little bit of each from both sport, some of the good stuff, some of the bad stuff. Um, and that's what I, when I first experienced gravel, I'm like, this is kind of like mountain biking. Definitely not 100% like road riding, but a little bit of the road stuff. And so we are finding both groups coming together, which I think is great because if you're riding bikes, you're riding bikes. Um, but what's happening is the people who are used to road tactics, which include a closed course, full, you know, cruise mechanics, they're passing you a wheel. That's what they know. And then the mountain bikers like me, endurance mountain bikers, we're expecting, well, nobody's going to hold my hand or fill my camel back or give me a gel. I better start the ride with all the food I need for a hundred miles. And, and it's an open course oftentimes. And if there's a, a car, I have to stop. And, you know, if I cross a road or cross a railroad track and so they're open courses versus closed course support versus not as much support, a little more self-sufficiency versus having a mechanic, a soigneur, you know, those kind of people. And, and we're bringing together those two worlds. And I think that's a little bit where the rub is, is like, Okay, we're bringing those things. Neither is wrong or right, but how do we land in the middle? And what is that code of ethics, or what is going to be the expectation of what gravel racing is? That's taking a little mm -hmm. bit from each each aspect of cycling. Yeah, I think you're getting to exactly what is needed, and that is not even necessarily code of ethics, but more of like a common expectations that you know whether you're doing rpi or you're doing dirty kanza you should expect if you're doing a gravel race that at the end of the event you are going to hand over your gps and you're going to upload to show that you did the distance and you did the course right that that should be maybe a common ex an, an understanding because there aren't going to be timing mats all over the place and there's not going to be a reception that you could tell if you did cross a timing mat you know but with the technology can meet that there should be an expectation that you are out there on your own and you do not have a crew and you do not have um anything that you're not carrying you're going to have to pick up either with there's an expectation that you will have drop bags on this kind of race and every 50 miles or what have you you know every agreed upon distance or you don't just sort of a baseline set of rules that are common across the event type and what those are i don't know it, people like you who race them and promote them probably have a really great set of uh, of ideas of what those common things can and should be and of course there should be differentiators and exceptions based on the course and it doesn't seem like it, it like it's going to be something that you guys are going to have a ton of disagreement upon but i think that because these are mostly remote and and i want to i'm going to sidetrack for just a second and say my guess is that jill cedarholm did not know she was cutting the course until after the event. I, my guess is a lot of people get off course and she was lucky enough or unlucky and you know, probably let's say unlucky enough to have cut the course in such a way that she wound up back on course ahead of everyone. I would bet a thousand dollars that was an accident. I, I but, hope so. And yeah, she's yeah. lucky she's not still riding around Kansas somewhere. Right. You know? <laughs> I, you know, I, I have accidentally gone off course before and in such a way that I would have, you know, I could still be riding. I could be in Australia right now but it, 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 without the intervention of someone. It's easy to do. You, if you have a rule of, okay, after the race, you got to turn in your GPS. No, no result on the GPS equals no result on the, you know, in the event. Or, or maybe it's more complicated than that. Maybe everyone has to put a spot in their back pocket. I don't know. And, you know, honestly, I don't care. But there should be some kind of common agreed upon set of expectations that for events like this, you're going to have to be out. You're going to have to be out there with something that says, yeah, you did the whole thing. And there's two things. I mean, the support crew thing that happened to Nick, I mean, for, for that, really, because they're open courses and cars are driving around and riders are on course. And I experienced this, you know, with my event is we don't want cars on the course for safety reasons. It's actually if we plugged up, you know, you imagine the, the Tour de France and all the cars that it takes, all the crews, everything. I mean, the stories I hear is it takes, you know, hours for those people to get through before the race even comes through. And that's not going to work on a, on an open gravel course in the middle of Idaho or, or Iowa or wherever. And so really that rule is, is it has to be that way mm -hmm. um, for us to be allowed to, to use those roads. 
Um, and the, anyone who's ever been out on a, on a gravel road and has had a, a bunch of cars going by them, we want that. Uh, yeah, we want the rule of not an open of you know not having support vehicles just so that we can you know breathe that much less dust. Yeah, you got to keep the traffic down. I mean, I think there is a way. You know, you, you can't ask everyone to do a spot device, or we get away from the purity of the sport, the freedom that we all love. Um, but I mean, I had an idea. It's like, you know, my husband uses game cameras or he'll put game cameras out, you know, and kind of scope for deer and elk and stuff. <laughs> and I mean, maybe there's places on course where there actually is some of that stuff that people don't know about. And you've got, you know, just kind of the sheer fact of knowing you might be checked on is going to hopefully, um, deter the people who want to try to bend the rules or break the rules. And I also think, like Patrick said, course design is very big. You know, you couldn't cheat on the private Idaho course. You couldn't cut the course. There's nowhere to actually turn or cut the course. Um, but (laughs) okay, (laughs) but (laughs) I'm going to be watching you, but, um, Kansas very much. So there, you know, that little leg of the course where I think Jill went wrong was a little dog leg that, you know, she went straight instead of going right. And, um, I assume that's what happened, but nowhere else would, it would have saved you any time actually to have done it. it. You would have gone longer. Well, I think we've heard some good ideas here. Code of ethics would be a great idea. Uh, you know, uploading a GPS. Yeah, I know. Maybe there's a few people still out there not riding with a Garmin or what have you. Maybe. But another great idea. And tighter control on feeds, um, that type of thing. Probably all the things that these gravel organizers should start considering before somebody decides to step in with some heavy handedness with a governing body or something. And we don't, we absolutely don't want that. Uh, folks, we're going to keep the, the gravel thing going here, but let's talk up some of the good things about one of our favorite ways to ride. We've got Crusher and the Tusher, the Grasshopper Adventure Series, and an Aero Gravel Bike up next on the Pace Line. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Fatty, Patrick Brady, Michael Houghton, and special guest Rebecca Rush has been joining us for our extravagant, our multi-layered discussion on gravel and adventure racing. Uh, Rebecca, thanks for uh, being here with us today on the show. Um, First of all, we're going to talk about some upcoming rides and events we all plan on doing, and I know that you have on your calendar the Colorado Trail Race. What the heck is this about? So that's um, a segment of riding called bike packing, and what that's about is totally 100% self-support. Um, uh, you use a GPS. You've got to follow the route. Um, if you need to resupply, you can leave the course, you know, go shopping in Leadville, Colorado, or wherever, and then rejoin the course at the same place and you're wearing a spot tracking device so all of that's verified um but it's 100 percent self-support and the race goes non-stop for 500 miles from uh denver to durango and uh along a lot of the colorado trail and it usually takes um you know anywhere from four to ten days depending on the rider so you make the choices of sleeping on the trail you're carrying a sleeping bag um water purification all that kind of stuff so it's the ultimate in self-support um so I'll be doing that uh, in July. Is it competitive? Do they time you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. course records <laughs> and people do it. You, uh, you know, I don't know how many people start, but you can also do it as an individual time trial. So you could go challenge, you know, the record at any time as long as you verify that you did the prescribed route um, and you have to carry the spot device uh, as part of it. That's just kind of part of the only way you verify really that you went the right way. What is the course? Mm-hmm. Bike choice is a oh yeah. Bike choice. I'll be taking um my Niner uh, RKT. So it's a, a oh, really full light suspension. I, I am going to take full suspension because there's a lot of technical riding. There's a lot of hike a bike. Um, and I'm going to have a reverb dropper seat post on there, mm-hmm. some fatter tires. So this is um you know, there's definitely real mountain biking on there. So, and, and also the course of doing something for riding your bike for a week long, the suspension's also going to provide some comfort level that, you know, I, I probably wouldn't want to do on a hardtail. Mm-hmm. So the Colorado trail race really fitting under that, uh, that adventure banner, kind of more in the, the gravel atmosphere. And one of the originals or one of the tough ones 
here in the United States has got to be Crusher and the Tusher. Fatty, uh, that's got to be starting to play in your mind a little bit. Oh, yeah, thinking about it pretty much every day, every single day. Uh, going to be racing that. I Last year was my uh, last year in the 45 to 49-year-old men category. My time last year would have not quite got me on the podium with a 516. I am hoping to be about 5 to 10 minutes faster than last year, which would be possibly fit me onto a podium in my new age group 50 plus men mm-hmm. uh, equipment choice i'm going to be riding a felt frdx uh, with envy uh, m50 wheels what keeps you going back i mean that race is very very difficult people put it right up there with with the rest of the epics in the united states why do you go back what makes it a great race and i'm not just talking about the course or that you want to see yourself do better mm-hmm. what on an organizational level says yeah i can i can continue to support that uh burke swindlehurst is probably the nicest guy you will ever meet and he put together a race around trails that he loves and that is a theme that i've noticed uh a number of times i you know self-promotion thing take a listen to the fatty cast i did with burke a while ago he put this race together because he wanted people to see where he rides and what he loves and i noticed that is a common element with uh great races and great events it's promoters you know they love where they are um, yeah. And you really get that sense. Also, it is something that is outside of my comfort zone. I am not someone who uh, is really great on this kind of bike, and I am not someone who is necessarily a natural for this kind of course. And I enjoy doing it because I can go there without any expectation of you know doing great or anything, but really hang myself out there and push myself. Plus, it is probably the best possible tune-up uh, for the Leadville 100 there could ever be with about 70 miles and around ten or 11,000 feet of climbing. Uh, it is a hard-working day that is not super technical, but uh, definitely will crush you. The you know, Crusher and the Tusher is emphasis on Crusher. Right. And we're going to hear from another one of these organizers that does it just for the love of it because he wants to show off where he rides. Uh, Patrick, you have made uh, 2016 the year of the Grasshopper Adventure Series. That six-parter wraps up June 25th with the King Ridge Supreme. Give us a little route sheet. What's out there on the the roads of Sonoma County? Okay, so uh, this one has a bit more mix of dirt and asphalt relative to uh, the last two uh, it's 83 miles, uh, about 8,000 feet of climbing. Uh, it opens with uh, the same road climb of Coleman Valley out of Occidental and then the descent of Willow Creek uh, and then takes in a few other uh, dirt climbs as well as dirt descents. Uh, but you descend King Ridge, which is you know the backbone of uh, the Levi's Grand Fondo. Uh, that we do every fall. So instead of climbing it, you descend it, which should be an absolute screamer. Uh, and then you finish with the dirt climb back up Willow Creek again. Um, I'm waiting for uh, Miguel to send me a text and tell me uh, if I'm running uh, 32 millimeter tires or 40 millimeter tires. I'm mm-hmm. I'm kind of thinking I'm running 40s again, even though I've got this set of wheels that I really, really want to run instead. Um Last year, I ran 28 tubeless at the event and did fine with caliper brakes, too, um, with regular, I'm, rather, I'm sorry, regular rim brakes and, and managed the event okay. So we've had a nice progression here. Full suspension mountain bike, uh, multi-day epic, a cross bike, a classic gravel uh, race, and uh, now a, more, of a, more of a road-centric adventure ride put on in Sonoma County. As Patrick alluded to, Miguel Crawford is the good guy behind the Grasshopper Adventure Series. And one of the originals, he puts on his events in relative obscurity, doesn't ask for a lot of attention, isn't looking to be the biggest or the baddest or the highest or the nastiest. Uh, We talked to Miguel after the Super Sweetwater event about the evolution of adventure racing and his 18 years of putting on the Grasshopper Adventure Series. Why, Why did you get into this? And what keeps you doing it? Uh, I love riding my bike, and I love this type of riding. Uh, you know, I started doing it as training events for mountain bike racing. It's where I live, and I just want to put together these really eclectic, super challenging loops. 
and uh, I'd have a blast doing it. And it's it's not thankless. Every time people are sitting up here, like on top of Coleman Valley, and having a beer and a guayaki and smiling and saying thanks, and the smile—I mean, that's that's huge for me. This end of the sport is beginning to grow and emerge, and I think more people are paying attention to it, both uh, participants and people who make equipment and so forth. As you see this start to sprout up, I mean, you've been in this how many years? What, this is our 18th year. 18 years. Yeah. Okay. As you see, you know, other events come up and equipment start to make a run at this and people start throwing the word gravel around, what are, what are some of your initial thoughts about that? Uh, we're gravel. I get that. You know, um, when there was a gravel grinder, I, I've had a problem with that one. So I like adventure rides, you know, um, this started out being an adventure ride because we didn't have feeds and we didn't have support. So people would literally have to stash bottles in the bushes and, and know where the local hose was to grab that. Uh, I think it's, you know, the more people ride, it, it makes people happy, makes people healthy. And, and I always hope that it transfers into time on the bike that's with their family and their kids and transportation. Ultimately, it's, it's a utilitarian thing, you know, and we get to come out on the weekend and do this. So uh, it, it is fascinating how much it's grown. Um, it's only been the last, you know, couple of years that I've really been paying attention to that. But, yeah, it, it's interesting. And as it grows, obviously, it will get more attention from governing bodies and you know, people with a lot of money. Do we run the risk of taking away some of this grassroots, homegrown feel? And is it important to you to preserve that? I mean, ultimately, it's the cyclists who vote what they want to do. I mean, there's a lot going on right now. There's sea otters going on. They have a Grand Fondo and a Dirt Gone Fondo. And, you know, there's been some ebb and flow with, with the riders here of how many people come. But I think if people are putting on an event, they do it because they love it and they, and it, and they want to ride it. And, uh, you know, and, and, and see how it goes. You've actually attracted some stars, to, to say the least. I mean, Lawrence Tandam was here at this event today. Levi's a regular. You get some names in your event. But I, I would doubt that's what makes you most satisfied about putting on these events. I mean, what are, what are the things that make you go, yeah, this is, this is why I keep doing this? Well, first of all, for me, I'm a little selfish and I'm still running the event so that I can ride them myself. Um, and that's, that's really important to me. It, you know, it, so for me, having that experience out there with the riders, I've had times when I've been in the top five and I've had times when I've been near the back, depending on fitness. And everyone, having done that and seen the middle, the front, and the back, to see how much joy people get out of it, it's a little bit of love-hate, uh, and how much time people invest in the sport that they love. How do you work with the community? I mean, the community can be uh, a give-and-take thing. I heard you say this morning that you had people call up saying, hey, when are you coming through? We'd love to come out and say hi. Uh, how have you managed to keep the spirit and, and the flow positive here in Sonoma County? Because we know that bike events can, can draw the wrong reaction. You know, that, that's a good question. That's been an interesting process because it's, you know, I, I teach high school. That's, that's my job. And... Uh, so I don't have background in business or event promoting. So I've been learning this as I go. And uh, once I learned to navigate the the bureaucracy of the county, you know, I found that it wasn't so difficult. And it feels really good now informing people. For a long time, it was important to remain under the radar. And then it got big enough. I said, no, that, that's not right. And so really the, the agencies that exist out there are to keep us safe. You know, the sheriffs, the CHP, the fire department. It's all to keep people safe. And so if we want to be out on the roads, we need to cooperate and, and work together to keep it legit. Uh, the sizes matter. Uh, it's I, I'm incredibly relieved at the end of each one when people arrive safely. Number one, that's my goal. People have a good time and that they're safe because these are really hard events and things happen out. Uh, anything can happen. It, it's a little bit exclusive, these events. I want to make them just hard enough that people are pretty hesitant to go, oh, yeah, I'm going to go do that. And to get, you don't want to get too many people in too far over their head yeah. because there aren't too many shortcuts back. And these roads, you know, I was rereading a blog, when, or not a blog, an interview with Levi a while back, and he said these kind of knight you as a Sonoma County cyclist. And for a long time it was just Sonoma County, but people come from bigger areas. I mean, it takes the consistency from January to June for a rider, so being healthy, being fit, having the equipment that works. And I, I really like, I think people like to, even 18 years into it, last night I was trying to decide what bike and what tires. Well, again, thanks for putting on the events. You probably deserve more thanks than you get. Uh, so thanks for putting these on, and I hope you keep doing it. I know eight, 17, 18 years, that's a long time to be in it, but 
we want to thank you for doing it, and we, we always have a good time up here. Hey, it's my pleasure. As long as people keep having fun and riding safe and looking out for each other, uh, uh, I'll, I'll keep doing it. Again, that was Miguel Crawford of the Grasshopper Adventure Series. The 2016 finale is June 25th at King Ridge Supreme. One of my favorite quotes here uh, from Miguel is, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. Not bad perspective there from Miguel Crawford. Rebecca, if you haven't done a, a Grasshopper Adventure Series race or ride, uh, I know that Patrick and I would strongly encourage you to do so. They're a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, they come in the first half of the year. Um, I think you probably got a flavor there of what Miguel's about. I mean, he's he has the right spirit in mind, probably like you uh, have instituted up at up in Idaho. Yeah, I mean, I this common theme I'm hearing, and I know it from Dirty Kansas and hearing Miguel talk about it, and Levi's Grand Fondo, and you know my event, Rebecca's Private Idaho, and and Burke's event. They're all because we love where we ride, and we want to show it to other people and bring them to our training ground. And that's the, that's the key to, for me, that's the key to a really amazing event because you know that the promoter's heart and soul is into it. None of us are in it to make money. You know, mine is a fundraising ride as well. And and a lot of these are, um, we're in it for the love of it. And because, you know, we want to show you our, our hometown and, and my events, no different fatty's fatty's ridden here. Um, Mm -hmm. Rebecca's private Idaho. It's very remote. I call it that because once you leave town, um, there's no cell coverage, there's no houses, there are more animals than cars. Um, and people (laughs) really are kind of blown away. Um, when they get into the Idaho wilderness, it really is the wild west. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. My event's going into the fourth year and the whole reason I did it is because I love where I live and I wanted to show people, I, I travel the world and people ask where I'm from and I say Idaho and they're like, Iowa, like no Idaho. And they go, Oh, potatoes. Right. It's like, well, (laughs) there's a lot more than potatoes, but also the Rocky mountains and, you know, um, ski resorts and, and, you know, some of the most untouched backcountry uh, in the lower 48. So um, so that's what my event's about, and and that's coming up Labor Day weekend. Um, and I have been inspired by going to other races and, and seeing other race directors, you know, like Miguel and, and like um, Jim from Dirty Kanza, and so figured, hey, why not um, come ride with me? Absolutely, and a great place to, to do that up in Idaho. Again, that's Labor Day weekend for Rebecca's uh, private Idaho. Rebecca, we love to talk about gear, too, on this show. We're all gearheads here, so... Uh, I found this in the what uh, what I would call from the really department uh, an aero gravel bike. What is that? Uh, indeed, 3T has unveiled something they call the Exploro. The Exploro X E X P L O R O. It's a mixed service machine that takes either 650B or 700C tires. They claim it cuts the wind better than a non-aero frame with slicks on. And yes, they've had it in the wind tunnel with knobs mounted, bottles and cages. And even some mud caked on it. 3T says the Exploro saves, saves, that is, 7 watts at 20 miles per hour. Patrick, little help here. 70 millimeter on the BB drop and 50 millimeters of trail. What's that tell you about the handling of this machine? Um, it's going to be plenty quick. It's got a long wheelbase, which is why it's got uh, you know a, a little more uh, a, a little more trail um, or a little less trail is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's going to be, um, you know, a, a reasonably nimble machine. Um, but you know, with the grasshoppers, you know, I think this is kind of an ideal bike. We do a lot of pavement, um, you know, before we get to, uh, the dirt. And then after we do dirt, we we're back on pavement. And so there are times where, you know, yeah, you've been doing, you know, 18 miles an hour on a dirt descent, but then you get back on the road and you're doing 28 miles an hour on a pace line. This bike is perfect for around here. Right. For the for the mixed surface events that definitely see a lot of tarmac, I could see this bike. This bike looks a lot like the Open Up, which is from the Vrooman gang. They started Cervelo. They have a, they have a bike that's quite similar. Takes yeah. 650s or 700s. Rebecca, you're bound by contract to ride a certain product, but is Aero something that ever enters your mind? And what is some of the input you're allowed or you try to give to your sponsors regarding equipment after you've completed 
some of your some of your ridiculously hard events. Yeah, I, what I see that's really exciting is kind of the blurring of the lines between mountain bike, road, gravel, and then events where it does kind of mix some of all of it, and and people are are left to choose. Like, huh? And I know crushers is very much this way. Do I bring a hardtail 29er mountain bike or do I bring a gravel bike? Or, um, and I, I actually think that that's really cool to push people to make a decision. And, and so for example, the arrow thing, um, the, the last, well, two races ago, I did a, a, a 500 mile race in Italy that was a self-supported bike packing event. And I rode, um, the air nine RDO from Niner. So it was 29 or hardtail, very light bike. Um, and I put very thin Maxxis tires on it. And I also put some aero bars on it, um, because it was so long, uh, and there would be technical mountain biking, but there would also be long sections of gravel where I wanted to get off my wrists and my hands and be able to just get comfortable. And, um, a, a few years ago in Leadville, I also put very small arrow, just the pads, not actual arrow bars, but just elbow pads on my handlebars. And you will see that in, in Leadville is like people are resting on their bars on those road sections. Um, and I like that the lines are being blurred. I think it's really cool. Um, I mean, ideally, like they want to sell more bikes and, and it'd be, God forbid, I could only have one bike um, to do everything. It would be, <laughs> it would be a yeah. shame. But I think it's really cool that everyone's pushing the envelope of like what I want to go exploring. What's the best bike for that? And I do feel like the the gravel bikes that are sort of a merge of mountain and road, again, are a really great bike that you can take on easy single track. You can take it on the road. Um, and I ride my, my Niner BSB, um, I ride on the road and the gravel and some sink track. And I just, I'll just swap wheels or tires if I'm doing a hundred percent of a road ride. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't really have a strict road bike anymore. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Just cause I don't uh, want to be confined. If I like look right. around the corner and I'm like, Oh, I wonder where that road goes. And there's a lot of that kind of stuff in Idaho. I want to be able to do that. And I mean, that's where road riding came from in the first place was, was actually on those kinds of roads, those dirt roads. Mm-hmm. And so yep. it's kind of going back in history a little bit, going back in time to like not being closed to just staying on tarmac. Mm-hmm. Well, we look uh, forward to hearing more about the Explorer from 3T. Again, it's not out yet, uh, and it is going to be expensive. Uh, the limited model, I think, the frame set, frame and fork and seat posts, go for like four grand. So you still have to kit the bike out after that as well. 3T's uh, new bike, an aero gravel bike. Pretty cool. Uh, the pace line, uh, rolling to a uh, somewhat of a slow halt here. Uh, we have we have a lot of momentum. We have four people this show, so <laughs> we really had it going here for a while, which is nice. Um, first, we want to uh, turn again to Rebecca Rush, who's been our special guest today. Rebecca, thanks so much for being here. We know you have a, a lot on your plate, so I want to just give you the opportunity. What do you have coming up? What would you like to promote? What's going on in your world, your website, your book tour, what have you? Yeah, I mean, I do a lot. Of, I do some stuff called the SRAM Gold Rush Tour, so I do a lot of events where I'm bopping around, um, and my website is, uh, you can always find me, RebeccaRush.com, R-U-S-C-H, or on Instagram or Twitter under the same name. Um, but I, yeah, I am traveling around all the time, promoting my book, selling books, doing rides with people, um, and, and then, of course, trying to bring people here at home. So it's easy to track me down with, as long as you know how to spell my last name. <laughs> mm-hmm. Always, uh, yeah, always exciting to follow what, what Rebecca's up to. She might be going up Kilimanjaro one day. She might be going up Columbine the next. You just kind of never know. Maybe she's writing a book. You also do great things with women uh, group rides. I've seen you at Sea Otter doing that as well. So thanks for all of that you do. And thanks for the excitement. I mean, it's just kind of fun to watch you. And for my autograph poster, You're which I welcome. love. I keep my... <laughs> I have my autograph Rebecca Rush poster. It's the it's the one I've the, one of the few autographs I've held on to over the years. Wow, thank um, you. Yeah, I want to turn now to the dads on the show. Uh, Fatty, that would include you, and I imagine uh, you will get a complete pampering on Father's Day, uh, all while trying to keep up with the Fatty Cast and FatCyclist.com. Huh. You know, I am going to be turning fifty this Saturday, and yeah. as I turn fifty, and I am I'm super happy about this. I will be racing the Rockwell Relay. So while I turn 50, I will actually be in a race. You know, as the hmm. clock turns over in, you know, at midnight, I will be racing from Moab to St. George with uh, my wife and with two other members of my family. And I am super stoked about it. 
on Father's Day, I will be recovering. <laughs> and then Monday, I fly out to Dublin for work. So there's not going to be a lot going on on FatCyclist.com for a little while. However, I am editing and will be posting really soon a really great interview slash podcast with Ken Clover, the founder of the Leadville 100. And really? I am going to be putting up a podcast where Yuri... Uh, details his day at the Dirty Kanza last uh, mm -hmm. just a few weeks ago. So more from the Kanza. You haven't heard the last of it. Uh, great story. Uh, Yuri is always so much fun to talk about, uh, talk with. And uh, just as a hint, it does feature Taco Bell, and not okay. in a good way. Okay. <laughs> Patrick, happy Father's Day, buddy. Uh, Red Kite Prayer always a good place for dads just to hang out, right? I'd like to think so. <laughs> What do we got on the pages there? Uh, let's see. Uh, travel feature coming up um, uh, about my uh, trip last fall to uh, Park City and a bunch of mountain biking there. Um, as well as me leaving Monday morning uh, for uh, press camp in Park City, uh, where I will get to ride some of the same trails. Um Let's see, and hopefully not getting home too tired for the final grasshopper, of course. We hope to see you on the line at the King Ridge Supreme, ready for your 83 miles and what, some 9,000 feet of climbing in Sonoma County. 28 tubeless, I'm telling you. That's that's the call there. Uh, the pace line can be found on the pages of redkiteprayer.com. That's where you also find show notes and links and a place to comment. Or head to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Music to subscribe. Uh, we ask that you continue to rate us on those services. Somehow, someway, someone is going to figure out how to monetize all these podcasts, and we just hope to get in the way of some of that advertising money. So for Fatty, Patrick, and our special guest, Rebecca Rush, I'm Michael Houghton. Catch you next time on The Pace Line. It is your women's champion, Rebecca Rush, from Kitchen, Idaho. Welcome back, Rebecca.